Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and I'm here with Beavis Schock. Welcome to the podcast, Beavis. Thank you, Eric. You are a St. Louis solo attorney. Why don't you tell us about your practice? Sure. I got out of law school in 82. I uh, promptly started a solo practice. I had worked for one summer for a big corporate law firm. I didn't like them. They didn't like me. And we parted company amicably. I uh, started on South Jefferson, which is a working class area in a storefront. Now, I had some family background that uh, established family money and was not going to starve. That helped a lot. But I was able to build a practice in a working class area out of a storefront doing bar fights and small car wrecks on the streets in front of us, walk-in criminal, DWIs were great, a ton of tickets. And it's interesting, as the practice then developed into a quite sophisticated civil rights constitutional practice, the people that I got to know in that first decade became referring attorneys for me for police misconduct cases, which is where most of my focus is now. The way it works is as follows. When I was going to municipal traffic dockets to handle DWIs, I was always talking to people and getting to know them and trying to have coffee with them. And a lot of those people over time developed a large and successful client base. If we have an attorney who's not located in an urban center, but maybe a, a more of a suburban type office, that person has a lot of people, hundreds hundreds, maybe even over a thousand, who look to that lawyer for help with traffic tickets, trusts and estates, small things that need to be done. And occasionally that person has a case that is in my main focus area now, police misconduct, and who do they call? That person calls me because I am their friend and that's how it works. So what I do is I tell the attorney right up front, surely you'd like to participate in this case? And the answer is sure. And I say, well, that, what that means is that I'm gonna talk to you every month or two throughout this case, call you, tell you what we're doing, and you're going to tell me what you think of the strategy and how we're approaching it. And I will send you the pleadings and you'll have usually a short amount of time to look at them. But sometimes that attorney who doesn't know about this area of the law will look at it from a sort of the 30,000 foot perspective and have something to say. And, oh my gosh, I didn't think of that will be my response and we'll amend our documents and make a better presentation. Now, let me add, I still do traffic tickets. I still write wills. I still handle contract disputes. I had one corporate client. I don't have many corporate clients, but I have a few. And it was a pretty large operation. And the CEO came to me as follows. I was in a barber shop and I knew the guy a little bit and he's in the chair and I'm gonna go next in the chair. 
who are doing the transition. He's getting ready to pay and leave. And the barber's getting ready to put me in the chair for my haircut. And the guy getting the haircut says, hey, Beavis, you're an attorney, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he says, can you be at my office tomorrow morning at nine o'clock? And I said, yes. <laughs> so I went to his office the next morning at nine o'clock. He had just gotten a bill for something like $5,000 from one of these big corporate law firms. And it was to write a two-page letter. And he was so mad. I mean, it was corporate money. So, I mean, big dollar companies have a legal budget and they understand they got to spend money on that. But a good CEO keeps track of the smaller stuff too. And he was furious at that bill. And then until he was deposed as CEO 10 years later, I handled for him lots of small matters. When I think of building a practice, the most important thing is contacts in the community. I talked earlier about meeting all these lawyers and having maintained friendships with all of them. Heck, one of them called me a few days ago on a matter that involved a tricky bit of business he had with a client, was upset with him. What do I do, do you think, Beavis? There were ethical issues. And I worked up a plan for him, which basically consisted of his withdrawing from the case and paying the client back every dime he had received. And I didn't charge that lawyer for that. I spent two or three hours on this thing. He was very upset. The guy thought he had done something wrong. I don't think he had done anything wrong, but I said, the answer here is return the money. So that lawyer, next time he's got a case, who's he calling? He's calling me. But the criminal side, how does one get criminal business? I had a young criminal lawyer approach me. He works for a big criminal firm and he has no practice of his own. He said, how Beavis, how do I develop a better criminal practice? And I said, well, the first thing you have to do is get out in the community. You got to belong to the, a club or two. So I'm really into these clubs. And there's a place in St. Louis called the Missouri Athletic Club where a lot of white collar people belong. And he said, well, Beavis, none of the members there are criminals. I said, they have nephews <laughs> and the nephews are criminals. And the white collar successful person ends up being the person who's going to pay that bill. Who are they going to call? They're going to call the person they saw at lunch the day before. People have no idea, young lawyers, of the importance of being out in the community and constantly developing that network. Your stories remind me, of, first of all, of the metaphor of planting seeds. It's like you're out there just throwing seeds all over the place, connections being made. Secondly, your story reminds me of the story of prior guest of the podcast, Charlotte Aldous, who is an attorney in Texas, very well known in those areas. She's part of the inner circle. And she started as a traffic ticket lawyer. And she explained she did hundreds and hundreds of cases earlier in her career. And she had a different angle on it. And not only do you meet a bunch of people like you're saying, but she said, I got in court a lot and I honed my presentation skills and my confidence of being on my feet and talking. Did you find that also you were handling a lot of small matters earlier in your career and still do some, but it was that a good part of you becoming a good advocate? Absolutely. One of the things about being a lawyer as opposed to being a law student is that as a lawyer, it's real. When we stand up before a judge and make a presentation on a motion or get up before a jury, particularly the first few times, it is completely different than this hypothetical theoretical world of law school. 
Now we have our client's situation in our hands. We have our own persona put up to public judgment. And one of the tricks to the, that part of the process is to be able to set aside one's own concern about oneself. How do I look? How do I sound? Am I stumbling over my words? And get into just presenting the material as best as one can. I like your use of the word persona. It reminds me earlier in my career when I was a young lawyer, I think I was very good technically. I prepared hard for my cases. I went into court and I argued motions. And some of them weren't coming out as well as I had hoped. And often I was on the defense side then. And I remember the plaintiff attorneys coming in with passion. And they would act with every gesture, every word that this is important. This thing is going, it might be a motion to compel an interrogatory. But they were there with intensity. And it occurred to me, I'm a technical lawyer. I'm going through the logic of the case and trying to explain to the judge why, but not deeply why. You need to go in and let everybody know you're a force to be reckoned with. You care about your clients. You care about the case. Not that you're going to get theatrical about a motion to compel, but you know there might be something else that comes up in that conversation where you need to be prepared to look like an advocate to have that, you know, back to your word, persona. Absolutely. I was working with co-counsel in a case and he was lead counsel and I had referred it to him. And I noticed in his pleadings that he was able to always write a very forceful introductory paragraph. Before then, I would start with the parties are Joe Smith and Mary Smith who are disputing the sewer backup. It was just boring. And he would start with, the gook was coming out of the sewer. And I thought, I've got something to learn here. This guy is writing better first press because that's the first impression that judge is going to get. Some judges, one of the tricks to this thing is to figure out whether the judge has read the pleadings when one shows up for the oral argument. And I, I always am appreciative when the judge says, yes, I have read it, as opposed to no comment, which is the more common position they take. I like to write like I talk more than most lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers who, you know, like you said, you know, the comes now and lay it out as far as who the parties are. And I want to get to it and I want to sound in writing more like what I sound like when I'm talking. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thought on that is that it is absolutely correct and never overlook the beauty of a simple indicative mood sentence with a subject and a predicate. <laughs> The how come here so evers are a disaster. And the skill of writing is obviously critical to our profession. And simplicity is the most important thing. Just keep it real simple. Just take my idea about the rules. There's a parallel with the writing. So let me go into this a little bit. One needs to know the rules well so one can get past the rules to what the issue is. If one can get all that absorbed internally, then one can focus on the case itself. Now, I know this podcast has talked about the importance of the beauty of the brief. It has to look pretty. And I think that's very important. But the writing has to be done with 
Word, the Microsoft Word program. Now, okay, there are other software programs that do writing. 99% of people use Word. Always go, in my opinion, with whatever software is most popular at the time. That's my rule of thumb for software. But Word is a powerful tool. There are these things called auto texts. So when I have to write the word plaintiff, I hit P, F3, and I know the technique such that a P turns into the word plaintiff. If I hit D, F3, it turns into the word defendant. And when I'm writing, I use these auto texts and other techniques of word that I have gotten highly skilled at so that I don't have to think about whether I've typed plaintiff correctly or not. I have to think about the plaintiff's position, the person I'm representing, and whether I've got it to be persuasive. Well, lawyers who think that, oh, I don't have time today to work on my skills at using Word are making a mistake. They should spend part of every day working on their word processing skills. And then that skill level builds up, builds up, builds up to where at the margin, they're just learning little things as they go along, but all the big things are done. I knew a fellow, by the way, 10 years ago, who was still writing his briefs out by hand, by ink on paper, handing them to a secretary. So I think there's some clingers on who think, well, I'll just get by, you know, I'll get just enough good at Microsoft Word, but I won't be proficient at it because I don't have the time to get really good at it. I think it's a mistake. And I'd like to talk about a few other programs too, like Acrobat or any sort of PDF program, because I find them equally wonderful as Word. But I think that's part of what's going on. There's a lot of people who don't want to pull themselves away from the day-to-day in order to get really good. And when you get really good at Word, the procedure melts into you. You're not thinking about the procedure anymore. You're thinking about how to persuade, which is a different thing. I've got so many what are called macros and auto texts. It just sings. First of all, speed's very important. So if a, a young lawyer doesn't have enough business, an established lawyer has too much business. I mean, they always say there are only two problems in business, not enough and too much. So let's assume that a young lawyer starting out is able to build a practice using some of the techniques that we've talked about today and other techniques. It's always a people game. And suddenly they get to too much business. That's when this efficient use of words and this speed becomes very important. Do you have the same thoughts about PDF programs? What if you have a four-page document and you want to put Bates numbers on it? A couple key commands, bang, Bates numbers are on it. You're done. Now attach it to the filing, get it out of there. That's one of my favorite programs to do a deep dive on. And I'm not saying you got to do Acrobat. I've got something called PDF Expert. There's a lot of others. And they all have a lot of these functionalities built in that are just sitting there waiting for you to take advantage of. I agree so strongly that I would say that any lawyer who's not spending time every day working on skills of writing and using software is making a mistake. I use voice dictation on a lot of things. I use a Mac still, and you can set it up for a key command, uh, a couple taps of a key, a little microphone icon shows up, and now you're talking into your document. And they're pretty amazing as far as accuracy. I use it for a lot of emails both on the phone and on the computer. 
and I dictate sometimes first drafts. You know, I just talk the thing in because it's putty. You know, if you think of words as I'm trying to get it right the first time, I never have it right the first time. But if you can get the words on the page, then I feel like, ah, right, now I can work with this and make it shine, get the things all honed just right. To what extent do you use a voice recognition? I use it now for emails, for text. Now, texts are a problem in our business. And let's talk about keeping time records and keeping all records. If we send an email, that's pretty easy to save. There needs to be a subdirectory process. I think this business is best practiced by people who have an orderly mind. There has to be a system for organizing the computer's records so one can keep track of it all. So when I write a text to a client, that's sort of a problem. I might be in my car. So I have to remember when I get back to my office, in fact, I, on the way down here today, I had an important conversation with co-counsel in which we worked up a little plan for our next move. Now, that's in my mind right now. That's the only place it is. So when I get back to my office, I've got to make a note about that. I, I use a program called Tasks, which is part of the Microsoft Office Suite. There are a million calendar programs. There are a million task programs. That just happens to be the one I use. If one isn't organized, there are a million ways to do it. I'm not just going to sit here and say one should use one program or another. And I've always felt that motivation is a tricky thing. Telling somebody to get motivated will not make them motivated if they are motivated. But certainly when one is thinking about honing one's skills to be a lawyer, one's ability to be orderly, keep track of the work, this ordering of one's life, one's legal life is the difference between success and failure. Boy, the solo guy has got to act like a big firm lawyer on the ordering of the work, the deadlines, all of that. And you got to fight that voice that sometimes pops in your head. Oh, I'll remember that. It's like, don't ever think, you know, put it somewhere. And what I've always done is I heavily employ the file structure that comes into, you know, both a Mac and Windows where I divide it up and I see that tree structure. It makes total sense. You call the folders, whatever you want, subfolders within the folders. And like you're saying, when you have a text, you got to grab that text. And I do. I want to have a place, a place to find all my stuff. I settled a case yesterday by text. And as soon as I got home, I grabbed the text and took a screenshot, threw it into that folder called settlement. Right. And so it's all there. So I don't know what percent of your day you spend doing this. It seems like it's 80% of my day I'm trying to keep track of stuff. It's not that much, but it just seems like it because it's not fun. But it pays off in the end to just make sure you're writing herd on all your information so that you can find it later. The trick is to do it simultaneously. One of my office mates once said, yeah, I know a lawyer who gets to the end of the week and then tries to write up his time records. What a joke. <laughs> I mean, if one doesn't have a way, whether it's in writing or on a computer or some dictation device, it doesn't matter what the program is. What matters is that it's done simultaneously. That's why this conversation I had driving down is a little dangle out there where I haven't written down yet what happened. So I have to get back to the office. But if I'm in my office, I mean, I just take notes as I go in the conversation. I don't want to write the notes later. You know, one of my favorite tools in the last couple of years are the automatic transcription services. I use Otter. There's a number of these programs where you upload the conversation. 
And so when a client calls me and says, I've got a problem with the car dealership, they rip me off. Okay, so this is the first conversation. I say, tell you what, let me arrange a call with you and we'll do it by Zoom and I'll record it. And then I'll make a transcript of it so I don't have to keep writing <laughs> as we talk. I'll take notes, but my notes then are just the most important things that I really want to remember. So that's what I've done for the last few years, have a Zoom conversation. And you know how clients are, they're very passionate about some things that don't matter to the case. And they can emote and our job to some extent is to listen to that and let them blow off their steam and then get to the good parts that where I can help you. But then I make that transcript, there it is. And it's pretty accurate. It's not perfect, but again, 98, 99% of it is making sense. And when you review the transcript, you can actually hear the conversation while you're reviewing it. And then I can highlight the transcript and then go to the next step. It's really nice. So I, I would take the exact opposite view of all of that. So I'm so delighted we're disagreeing a little bit. Let me give you the other side of that one. When I sit down to talk to a client, I take notes throughout the meeting. For many clients of mine, it is the first time in their lives anybody has written down notes about something they have said. It's a tremendous compliment to them. And it's sort of proof I'm listening. I can't establish the eye contact while I'm writing. I've never thought that was a problem. I look up enough to ask the next question or say what happened next or whatever. It works. And so I might, if an, an hour meeting goes by, maybe have four or five pages of notes on a legal pad. The client has been complimented. I am, as that's going on, using judgment about what's important and what's not important. Don't forget, too, when I get ready for the next meeting, which is a month and a half down the road, I pull out that piece of paper. I can read those five pages in three minutes, and I'm up to speed on the case. So that is, to me, and Eric, I don't mean to say that i am got the right approach and you have the wrong approach. They're different approaches, but I think it's very good to take notes during meetings. Now, I never know whether to take notes during a meeting with opposing counsel. I think that is completely different and often best not to take notes. Try to reach a general agreement and then go home and write an email that says, here is what I recall of our conversation please let me know if I have misstated anything. So it's completely different for me with the client and another attorney. With another attorney, I need to have my attention on that person so I can judge the little physical cues of whether I'm making progress or backsliding. There's another thing, Eric, I would say, which is I've had two clients, maybe three in my career, who've walked into my office and said, do you mind if I record our conversation? I say, well, actually, there's not a lot left to say because I'm not going to be your lawyer. I will not work with anybody who wants to record a conversation with me. If they ask, they're out. And the reason for that is that I can't figure out why they would want that except that they would be setting me up. In other words, they think I'm going to do something different than what I said that I would do in that conversation, which of course may well be true because circumstances changed or my opinions changed. But that's all about setting me up. So I would be disinclined to tell a client, I'm gonna be recording this conversation because I don't like it when the clients say to me that when they're gonna do it. In fact, when they do do that, I just throw them out and say, you're gonna to have to get somebody else to represent you, I won't. In a lot of the consumer cases, it's hard to get the facts in there's a lot of documents involved, and usually the first impressions are things that maybe make 
more sense later when I've seen a document and I can make sense of it. So it helps me and I'm the one asking and I've had no one object. I do that, but mainly as a tool for me to highlight later. I'm not trying to justify it. It works for me in some cases. Let me ask you, because your website's intriguing, it's Shock Law, and I'll spell it in case anyone wants to take a look. It's S-C-H-O-C-K-L-A-W.com. And I noticed the little lightning bolt on the top, and I'm thinking about how you said you didn't fit in with the big firm, and I'm thinking, this is who you are, man. You're having fun, you're doing it your way, I bet that big firm did not have lightning bolts or little things on the top of their letterheads. But here you are, and you start out in a way I haven't seen before, and I like it. You have three things that clients are concerned about. It's right there on the homepage, and I'd like to go over your three topics and what you had to say about it. I'll just read the three questions, first of all. Upon entering the attorney's office, the client is worried about at least three things. Whether the problem can be solved at all, whether this is the attorney who can solve it, And three, whether the fees are going to be fair. I thought, that's excellent. That's what a lot of clients worry about. And I don't think I've ever seen it on a website. So can we go over your answers to those? Because I think it would give us a window into how you, you know, start your conversation with your clients. These people come in for these small fender benders, get out of the car and say, ouch. And they want to get money. Their problem is that they want money they're not entitled to. Nothing happened to them. And I tell them, I can't solve your problem. My answer to the question on the website is that I've been doing this for many, many years, and I have a few battle scars, and I can provide an initial evaluation. And if I can't, I tell them to go to somebody else. I don't know how to solve tax problems or bankruptcy problems, but I can tell them where to go. So whether I'm the person who can solve it, that's the next question. And the answer is that You have to feel in the gut whether I'm the right lawyer. The client has to sense this person will help me. And how many times have we not felt a bond with somebody? I just don't feel this right and let them go on out the door. And that's both directions. I only take cases in which I believe I can help. And you have to be willing to get this sense that there's a feeling in the gut on both sides that we can probably work together and whether the fees are gonna be fair. I practice on my own. I like to think I'm light on my feet and can work reasonably quickly. I do my best to charge fair fees. That's all I can say. What I'm trying to do with my website is keep it to where it's sort of honest and simple and understated. I get a lot of clients. We're gonna stop here, and I appreciate your willingness to stay for a second episode. Beavis, thank you for showing up and having this conversation. Fascinating every minute. And if I can impart any wisdom to help young lawyer, I call that a success. All right. That's been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.